this kind of interfacing with the public, I find it very cool because at the end of the day, we are being paid by the taxpayer. We are doing this for the common good. And it's only fair that we, somewhere we can, we integrate, we integrate the uh, public to, uh, to the highest degree possible. Space is full of data. With seven spacecraft operating just at Mars and another on the way, the space agencies of the world are streaming back a continual flood of ones and zeros to Earth. After all the exciting stuff like launching rockets is over, what happens to that data? How do we process it, and who gets their hands dirty in the science? Well, it turns out it's more than just scientists. It can be you, too. Thanks to the Zooniverse's Planet 4 project, everyday people like you or I can now do planetary science from the comfort of home. We'll talk to Michael Aya, a project scientist for the Planet 4 team, to learn more about how crowdsourcing this deluge of data is not only yielding scientific results, but also engaging the public in a new, innovative way. All this and more on today's episode of the We Martians podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the We Martians podcast. I'm your host, Jake Robbins. I want to welcome all the new listeners that are now joining from iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. After the last episode, I published the feed, and the feedback so far has been great. Remember, you can also follow us on Facebook, and we're on Twitter at we underscore Martians and Instagram at we Martians. Let's get started. When the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, or MRO, was being designed around the turn of the century, the concept of big data was still pretty new. In fact, at this time, more than three quarters of all the world's data storage capacity was still analog. The dot-com bubble had burst and confidence in the power of internet conglomerates was shaky. Google had only just moved its offices out of a garage into Palo Alto and didn't even have a patent on PageRank yet. There was no Twitter, no Facebook, and no Wikipedia. NASA data is legally required to be open and available, but without the resources of a government-funded or privately-backed organization to process it, citizens looking to learn from the amazing missions they've flown were forced to simply wait for the press releases and check out the newest hot image or the next great discovery. Even scientists, who were perhaps best equipped to interpret the data that NASA orbiters like MRO generated, needed lots of funding and resources to sift through the large amounts of data that might yield greater and greater discovery. Sifting through the planetary data system for global trends on another planet is not a quick process. The dawn of the digital age, which had begun in full force by the time MRO lifted off from Cape Canaveral in 2005, changed all of this. As the famous Martian probe, sometimes called a spy satellite, cruised to Mars, engineers, scientists, and the general public were only beginning to understand the applications available thanks to the internet and crowdsourcing. In fact, the term crowdsourcing only really got coined after MRO had launched in a Wired magazine blog post about stock photography. But crowdsourcing isn't a new concept. For centuries, humans have been breaking down work into smaller groups and distributing them to people. Building the pyramids is a daunting task, but less so when each brick is given to a new batch of people. But the digital age and the new interconnectedness of people across the internet unleashed a new level of crowdsourcing. Now, the people didn't even have to be at the worksite. Or better yet, you never even had to meet them. Sites like Wikipedia were born, a collaborative encyclopedia that anyone can contribute to and have their contributions reviewed by others. By 2007, it had surpassed over 2 million articles, which broke the record held by the Young Encyclopedia, set six centuries earlier. Kickstarter emerged, allowing people to realize grand projects by spreading their costs to other interested parties. Google might be the best example. By gathering all the data on searches across the world, they can discover amazing trends and, of course, market a powerful product. All of this is possible thanks to the digital data and the internet. So, when the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter entered Mars orbit in 2006 and began beaming down high-resolution images back to Earth, the possibilities for using the data were only just emerging. Ten years later, MRO is still going strong, having orbited the planet over 45,000 times. It has returned over 250 terabits of data, more than any other planetary mission ever. Of course, many papers have been written using MRO data in the traditional way. Scientists have used its images to find water in the ice caps, capture avalanches and moving dunes, and perhaps most famously discovered liquid water on the surface in the form of recurring slope lineae. But these papers won't stop. All that data is still out there waiting to be reviewed. All 10 years of it. 
the data deluge, as it's been described, is a real problem now with space and ground-based missions. New forms of data storage, getting denser and denser all the time, rack up huge amounts of bits. This quote by an individual who I'll get to very soon says it best. Something very strange is happening to us. It's something strange caused by an explosion in technology, in uh, computing power, in the availability of cheap cameras, in bandwidth. Because in many areas of science, I think for the first time in a long while, we almost have too much data. And I think that a lot of the science that happens in astronomy, in ecology, in climate science, um, over the next decade will be driven by how creatively we can solve that problem. But with the power of crowdsourcing, new ways to explore it are starting to emerge. Now, this is not to say that organizations like space agencies or universities were completely taken by surprise by the potential for internet-based crowdsourcing science, or citizen science, as it's sometimes called. In the year 2000, NASA tried an experimental program called ClickWorkers that tested the use of anonymous internet users on known Viking data. Users identified craters by drawing circles around them in a browser-based portal. The project was a success. Over 90,000 entries had been secured over a roughly one-month period. The classifications were received much faster than a grad student could have done it, and in fact, they were received even faster than the spacecraft could actually return the data. And the quality was there, too. Clickworkers were within a couple pixels of the cataloged, accepted location on their maps, and this accuracy could be easily reinforced through redundant classification. They were onto something. In 2006, NASA also released the first phase of Stardust at Home, which allowed visitors to analyze aerogel images combined into these things called focus movies that were exposed to dust particles during the Stardust mission. The stakes were higher on this one. The first phase of participants were promised to have their names inputted as co-authors on any papers listed their discovery of interstellar dust particles. These crowdsourced researchers set to work on over 700,000 individual fields of data. Finally, in 2007, Kevin Shawinski and Chris Lintot come along. It was Chris you heard from earlier talking about the data glut. The two were looking at a catalog of nearly a million images of galaxies taken from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, an automated robotic telescope survey in Arizona, and they wanted to sift through and classify each one as a spiral or an elliptical, etc. After a sleepless month by himself, Kevin managed to get through 50,000, but it just wasn't sustainable, and his early results indicated that it was important to get through all of the images. Inspired by the previous studies, he and Lintot founded the Galaxy Zoo project. After putting the images online for six months, they attracted 100,000 volunteers and made over 40 million classifications. It was a huge success. In fact, the results were also high quality, as Chris explains. The results are really good. Because it turns out, in fact, they're better than just having Kevin do them all, to his relief and mine. Because if you think about it, let's, if all of us looked at the same image and made an independent classification, we can say something with huge confidence about what that image is. If Kevin had really looked at all million galaxies and made some of the discoveries that we made, people would have been perfectly at liberty to just say that Kevin doesn't know how to classify galaxies. But if 100 people have looked at the same galaxy and they all agree, we can say with, with a measurable degree of confidence that that really is a spiral or an elliptical or whatever. Two years later, Galaxy Zoo grew into a parent organization called the Citizen Science Alliance and a group of citizen science projects known as the Zooniverse. Bolstered by the success of Galaxy Zoo, the Zooniverse began hosting a multitude of projects crossing all kinds of science, from astronomy to humanities to ecology, Volunteers can hunt exoplanets using Kepler data, track animal movements in the Serengeti, or transcribe World War I diaries. Zooniverse has over 1 million registered volunteers, called Zooites, and their work has spawned more than 70 published scientific papers. With the widespread success of citizen science, it wouldn't be long before someone got their hands on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter data. And so someone did. Enter Planet 4. Now, I can tell you all about Planet 4, the Martian Zooniverse project, but once again, I thought it would be best if we instead counted on an expert to explain it. Michael Aya is one of the project scientists who is working on Planet 4. It was at the end of a long week where he was able to present a poster on the results of this interesting project. 
Okay, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Um, we're just catching up with you at the end of the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in uh, the woodlands outside of Houston. So uh, thanks for taking the time to join us today. I'm sure you're very, very you're tired. I know conferences always drain a lot out of you. Um, I thought maybe we would start off with just uh, a little bit about yourself. So what kind of education do you have, uh, you know, your background? So I have a, a quite um, diverse education I, because uh, not only uh, are my interests quite wide. Uh, I have uh, the so-called two-body scientific problem, which uh, having a scientific wife as well. So that, that led us all over the place. But let me start at the beginning. I had a general physics education um, in Germany at that time. The only qualifying astronomy degree was actually to do the PhD. So it was very early on my focus to, to get a PhD in astronomy in one way or the other. So one, once I had my first degree, uh, I went to England to do my PhD in high-energy gamma-ray astrophysics. So, uh, yeah, I always loved the combination of high-energy physics and astronomy. And there was a new field born at the time, and so I joined that and uh, had my diploma thesis in that and also my PhD. But after that, I actually became interested in the ongoing astronaut application in Europe. So I looked into ways on how I could get into spacecraft flying around Earth and maybe doing the research in planetary bodies because when you learn about how missions uh, that launch on rockets, uh, if they work, then you, basically you have already a little bit of pre-exposed uh, experience um, in this area and I was hoping that it would help me later on for the astronaut application, which uh, did not very much. Uh, I, didn't get, I didn't get far in it uh, um, and it was pretty obvious they wanted also an experienced pilot already because I think all four candidates had a pilot license for years and I didn't. So I, I didn't get very far with that. But yeah, I, uh, I then had my first postdoc and changed to planetary science uh, in Germany. Back in Germany, I went after four years in England and joined the Dawn camera team, uh, the framing camera team. And I was helping there to, uh, to get the operating software running for the framing camera. Uh, met my wife at that institute, and then we moved to Switzerland, did, uh, I think, a stay of four years there. Uh, I was a deputy project manager for the new laser altimeter of the Baby Colombo mission, and uh, had a little bit of uh, time on do, doing science on the side, together with my wife's major project, is the South Pole of Mars, or let's say the poles of Mars, with the active region, which is part of uh, the topic of our later discussion. And, um, and then I got a postdoc in, at UCLA after that, when 2012, since 2012, we are in the USA, and uh, had two years there, postdoc, and then I got a higher-level postdoc, they call it Research Associate Level 2 in Boulder, where I have to, I, I have some funded money by somebody who hired me, by my boss, Larry Esposito, uh, but I also should, uh, I'm encouraged to write proposals to get my own funding money. I'm always uh, I'm always amazed at at uh, sometimes a scientific career can just take you all over from different projects and all over the place. So it sounds like you've certainly done the tour of duty. You've been in a, a <laughs> few different places. So how do you go from um, you know from from your background to this uh, this Planet Four project? Uh, you know what's the path to that? How did you get caught up in that? Yeah, so um, I started the research in South Pole of Mars by looking over the shoulder of my wife, basically. So she actually did a PhD. In, the, in, the, in these really active processes. And she's also a member of the team. So when we talk about later about the team, we can talk about this a bit more. But that's how I started it. And then in Bern, I continued to uh, help out with, uh, with the image processing pipelines and so on. I'm, I'm a bit more technical-oriented. I like the data analysis, high-tech part of all of science. Uh, that's why I also was in the instrument development and uh, taking care of it in the vacuum chambers and things like that. So my path was that I was always interested also in the machine learning part, this new kind of science that uses heavy statistics uh, in analyzing data in an automated fashion so that your statement uh, that you make about the data analysis, I, I like it because it is more objective in a way because you're not suffering from fatigue as a scientist to, to do thousands of images on your own, which is which can be measured and can be corrected for, but... Um, my, I always thought that if the computer can do it objectively, then it would be a, ni a nice way to do it. 
And uh, so I started doing these experiments in Switzerland to use automatic image analysis to do this stuff, which we later on talk a little bit more about. But um, basically the path was that uh, I failed in the initial experience because experiments because the uh, computer techniques that were either available or I was aware of, because it's quite a different field, uh, did not help me to, to do the task I wanted, which was to isolate the features that we observe. Eventually, uh, the let's say, the supervisor or the, the group leader of seasonal effects on the south poles of Mars or north or poles of Mars, that's Candice Hansen, another team member, she was approached by somebody in, in England, and that's how the project started. And I was just uh, being a team member of it because I was interested in the technical analysis part, so I took over the whole analysis chain, uh, and it has actually close, uh, a close relationship with machine learning. It's basically one of the pre-tasks of machine learning is to take human precise uh, test data and then you could use that later on for the computer to, to get better in its tasks, what, what it needs to do. So I, I basically ended up doing uh, what I do because I was always a little bit nibbling on the computer-heavy parts of the whole analysis I work with, um, in my day job and stuff, I work with a lot of data as well. And uh, one of my favorite sayings is, is you know, when we're, we're trying to make decisions, uh, you know, data doesn't care about your feelings. Data is always very objective, right? It's always, uh, you know, it tells you the truth and, and that's that's all it can do. So that's, that's great to hear. So maybe then, like, you know, in a couple of sentences, uh, you know, what is Planet 4 then? So you, you get caught up in this. Uh, what exactly is the product trying to do? All right. So the science question in the beginning is that, Mm, we have a, a, a quite special geomorphological effect happening on the, on Mars, which doesn't exist like this on Earth, which is that there is, every year, CO2 is freezing out from the atmosphere in a high percentage fashion. Something like 30% of the atmosphere freezes out on the poles. So And, and it always changes, goes back and forth. So South Pole, North Pole, North Pole, South Pole comes back, uh, sublimes in the in the spring and then goes to the other pole where uh, pole where the winter approaches and um, the uh, frozen out uh, CO two builds uh, around one meter thickness layer around the south pole. Wow. Basically, we call it a seasonal uh, ice cap, a CO two ice cap. And it just so happens that the uh, temperature is so stably cold that the ice in yields to something very transparent or translucent, better. Uh, to say. So you cannot image through it, but light gets through it. That's the difference between transparent and translucent. And, uh, and when the light gets through this ice, it warms up the, uh, the layer underneath the ice. And when that layer underneath has been warmed up by the light, it actually sublimes the CO2 from underneath that ice. Now, now you have CO2 ice gas, uh, sorry, CO2 gas underneath the layer, but there's a CO2 ice layer everywhere, so it can't go anywhere. So it's actually pressurized uh, to a certain extent, and pressurizes even more if there's more sunlight coming in and subliming, which is happening in the springtime. And then eventually it, uh, it's going around underneath the ice and finds the weakest spot in the ice and then breaks through. And then we have what we call a CO2 gas jet. It has been called geysers in the past, especially in the time when we were not really sure what is this thing erupting there. Because with the eruption, it carries uh, regolith material, so uh, dust and sand, and deposits it on the surface of the ice. And because in the images, the ice is highly reflective, so very bright, these dark deposits, they look very dark. Even so, they are not actually in absolute measures very dark. They are, I think, uh, as grayish or uh, darkish as any other sand and dust material. But they look always very dark because of the contrast with the eyes. Sure. And, um, and this happens every spring. And we believe, uh, due to all the mm, long-year studies that we have done now, also including uh, my, wife, my wife, who is also part of the project, that um, this erosion underneath the ice actually, with the high-pressure friction, uh, erodes channels into the ground. And because this pressurized movement is kind of randomized, in terms of finding the weakest spot in the ice, uh, it actually creates a kind of randomized-looking jittery paths towards a central location. And we believe that after first years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years of more randomized travel, 
it actually eroded a little bit of paths or troughs into the surface where, because of the inclinations of these troughs, the sunlight exposure to the low-hanging polar sun uh, is make, creating an advantage for making the ice weak. And, and because it's inclined, it actually catches more sunlight, so the sublimation starts first at, at these incl slight inclinations. So after first years of random travel, it becomes focused on these areas, and that's why they dig out more and more. And we don't know yet how long it takes. We estimate between 1,000 and 10,000 years. After this time, it has created diggings uh, or features in the ground that look a bit like a spider shape because they're random armed. They eventually uh, focus on a certain spot where just by, by chance, we think, uh, was then always the weakest spot of ice because there is so many inclinations that even with a little bit of sun uh, the ice gets weakest fastest there in the springtime. So these deposits they come out and we don't know much about this how it exactly happens because it's it's not so easy to model you you have to correct for a lot of things uh, the transparency of the ice there's dust absorption in the atmosphere so we don't know 100% not too bad it's like but with a 5% error we know how much light is going coming in in the first place. Then I said the transparency of the ice, then the contact between the ice and the ground is not very understood because when there's high-pressure gas, you can imagine maybe it lifts the ice layer a little bit. Mm -hmm. So how does this all work when the ground is hot and you sublime ice, but you have now the gas in between? What's the heat transfer between that? So we are not very sure um, how is that working. And then you need to break ice. So that's all kinds of modeling. It's really fascinating problem. All, almost all parts of physics are yeah. taking part. It's like photon transfer, ice, mechanical things. You have, need to break the mechanical structure of the ice. And then you have uh, high-pressure gas transport. So it's a standard uh, hydrodynamic uh, simulation. But you need to grab particles. So you need to erode from the, uh, geo, uh, from the geographical surface. We don't have a complete model yet. Basically, we, we tried to get funding for it, but nobody believed that we can do it, and I can understand that because it's a huge problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we have to do it piece by piece so that the reviewers of proposals always believe us that we can do this piece. And, yeah, but coming back to Planet 4, what we want to do, uh, we see this all over the place, and we use high-res data. I mean, usually we look at high-res data. That's uh, one of the cameras on MRO, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. It's the highest planetary resolving camera that exists in the solar system currently the data is huge so it's really you have to scroll many times on the monitor to even look at one image yeah it's because it's gigantic images so we just don't have the manpower we are just four people and we don't have the manpower to do it in a statistically consistent way so we thought already for a long time we thought let's uh, ask volunteers enthusiasts of mars or science in general that want to help us so Planet 4 displays the high-res images cut down in many, many tiny pieces so that they fit one by one on one computer screen and displays this data. And the volunteers that are helping us, uh, for which we are very thankful, um, they mark the fan deposits and the blotches that we call blotches when the fan, basically the deposit has no discernible direction, uh, but are more roundish or elliptic, then we call them blotches. And they help us in marking them. So what we learn from that is where are they happening when? Because we have quite some data where there's none of these things are happening. So we don't understand why they're happening, where they're happening. We roughly understand from our beginnings of energetic modeling when they're happening, so why they're happening at that time. But what we don't understand is why they're happening at some places and why not somewhere else. So we're trying to gather statistics over all the locations that we have put into the Planet 4 system by, by making better maps on uh, where is the activity starting when. And maybe they're actually, and we, I think we have indications for that, not yet very conclusive, that this activity start in the springtime when the sun comes up in the pole areas, that it is uh, different, slightly different in different times. And it might be a simple uh, dependency on latitude because latitude controls how much sun you have and how much energy you get. It might be a simple thing like that, but we're not sure yet. And we, we're hoping that we get that out of Planet 4. And it looks good so far. 
Okay, cool. So I'll just try and summarize there. So you're using uh, primarily the high-rise data data from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Uh, anything from that? They have a second camera on there too. I think it's the context camera. Do you use any of that data or is it all high-rise? So I don't know if you want to discuss it immediately now, but we have already a daughter project that uses the CTX camera as data. Simply, okay, that's that Planet yeah. 4 terrains, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. And that's simply for the reason that high-rise camera is so high resolution that it doesn't actually cover much area. And we had then the idea after this already, it was clear that Planet 4 will be successful. And uh, we had the idea that we use CTX data that is uh, it's in terms of 50 centimeter resolution, 50 to 25 centimeters, it actually has six meter resolution. Mm-hmm. So, and the images cover a much larger area. So we had the idea we, again, cut these CTX images in pieces, show it to the people, and tell us if they see spiders. Because we were not really uh, having a very good overview where spiders are. And it looks very exciting, the results out of it. First, we actually thought that we just use this to plan for high-res, new high-res observations. So that's actually another side effect of the whole thing. Now we're using uh, the volunteers' efforts to find new exciting places where we look with the high-resolution camera. But uh, before we even do that, we already have so exciting results with CTX that we will work on publishing them even. So that's we, we currently see that there is uh, some benefit out of Planet for Terrain so good that we want to publish something with this. That's awesome. That's great to hear. So yeah. you're you're trying to figure out... The you know the locations of, of these these uh, these spiders these forms trying to figure out why they're there not other places. Um, mm-hmm. You're using this data. So uh, is that all the volunteers are doing? They're just kind of mapping the fans and the blotches. That's sort of the the extent of of their involvement. So actually, in terms of the direct measurement results, that's it. But there is actually a very big effort uh, on their side that is uh, very much appreciated by us as well. So there is a forum where people discuss things. And it's amazing uh, with the, with the uh, enthusiasm the people uh, have caught up on this project. We have uh, a bunch of people that are really putting so much effort in it, and they're always in the forums and discussing this and take a load uh, from us by explaining to the new newcomers to the projects what kind of things you have to be careful about and what, what really things uh, uh, mean when you see something unusual, then uh, they explain to them what we have done at the beginning, that some things are known to be camera artifacts or you have to be careful to look at this like this or where the sun comes from and that it actually f- can fool you in terms of interpreting the image because the orientation is actually interesting. The brain expects the sun f- coming from the upper left. And if you have geomorphological features and the sun and that image comes from the lower right, the actually uh, statistically averaged brain has problems to interpret that correctly and sees craters as bulges. That's, I, I've read that. that they, we, we often mistake, yeah, it's always opposite, right? It's craters and bulges. Yeah, to, yeah okay. That's, that's interesting yeah. to hear that that's what that is. It's a... Yeah, and then there are confused people like me who always have a problem with no matter where the sun comes from, I suddenly see bulges and don't see craters anymore. <laughs> I, have, I have to always knock on my head until I see something correct. Okay, kind of cool. So I guess, yeah, it's like that collective wisdom that you get out of, uh, you know, all those people, so many people. Do you know how many volunteers you have? Like how many classifications have, have your volunteers racked up so far? So we have over 130,000 part- different identifiable participants. Wow. Uh, most of them are not regular. Most of them come for a while because honestly, the, the work is hard mm-hmm. because we ask, sometimes ask them to mark 30, 40, 50 different items in an image uh, to cleanly lay them out with the, with the marker that uh, uh, redraws the shape of the fan or the blotch with the correct radii and the correct length. So it is quite an effort and I think one has to be quite enthusiastic to continue doing that over a long time. <laughs> How much um, um, how much d- data have you fed into this system as far as like you know what from from MRO how how much uh, how many pictures that kind of thing? Yeah, uh, bef- before I say that, let me uh, finish the other thing. Is we have six more than sixteen million items marked by people. Okay, and so the pipeline has to be quite uh, capable of uh, of doing these numbers, and and this is what I reduce and make average objects out of these things. Uh, uh, oh, now I forgot your question. What was your? Oh, how much question? how much data have you actually taken from MRO and put into the the system? Oh. 
So I, I cannot say in terms of percentage um, of MRO. I just can say that it is not very big part because uh, MROs, I think it's m fair to say they focus their work a little bit on the geology of the mid-latitudes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, also also poles, of course, because they're the famous North Polar Layer Deposits, South Layer Deposits, that tell us a lot about the climate history of Mars with the stored layers and deposits in there. And um, I think still by area, one could say that in the mid um, equator, equatorial regions and mid-latitudes, mid there's a lot of imaging work. But uh, because it's a polar orbit, the time coverage and the spatial coverage is actually uh, quite good at the poles mm -hmm. because you're always close by. You're always and, crossing it. Yeah. So um, so I, I couldn't tell you a percentage number. I can tell you that uh, each high-res image is, uh, can be around uh, a gigabyte. And we have fed more than 100 full high-res images into the Planet 4. Um, so cut down in little pieces, I can tell you it's 96,000 computer screens. Yikes. So, so that, that's the amount. And our statistical uh, demands are that we have each tile looked at 30 times. Right. We, we actually started with 100 and realized it's far too much. And we don't really need it. Uh, so we have an initial... Uh, we did this for the first time, so we were not really knowing uh, how it w would work. I, I don't think actually no, uh, anybody has ever done this kind of high-detailed work with volunteers in the public. Yeah. So, so we were one of the most complicated projects of, of the Zooniverse system, actually. So do you have, um, like, you know, this is, this is still ongoing. I can still log on now and, and mark these, these fans. So do you yes. have um, a timeline for when you're done? Like, when, how, much data, how much more data do you need to get? Hmm. I didn't, I didn't do a, a big stats overview recently. What I can say is that uh, we have our, our favorite regions, because they are very active and have show different kinds of fan deposits and so on, they have several seasons finished now. And I'm still working on some kinks on the pipeline, uh, but we are very, very close. Uh, I thought I actually would have done it uh, during the conference, but I again found some issues that uh, uh, could could me uh, uh, hindered me from finishing the pipeline, but we're very close in actually getting the technical paper out, which means uh, it describes uh, the whole process, the pipeline, the mine reduction pipeline, and some quality um, studies, where uh, we have looked at uh, something like thousand images each of our scientists group uh, ourselves, um, which by the way consists of. Uh, uh, Candace Hansen, who initiated the project uh, at PSI, and uh, Max Schwamp, uh, who is currently in Taipei in Taiwan, and uh, uh, but she is a U.S. scientist as well. She is doing a lot of work, and she had previous experience with the Zooniverse project. Uh, she has a project herself, Planet Hunters, which is also very interesting. She uses Kepler data That's to Kepler, hunt for yeah. new planets. Yeah, and uh, Gana Podjankina, who has a long-time experience. Uh, my wife uh, in this. Uh, research field so cool okay and uh, where were we ah uh, yeah um how much uh, longer will it take so i think we still have data for around a year to analyze okay uh, be because it's just so difficult and um planet for terrains is uh, progressing faster because it's just i think also more pleasant for the volunteers and um we're also thinking actually at some point make make a phase two for the North Pole activities. Currently, we're only doing South Pole. Mm -hmm. And it would be interesting to do something in the North Pole. We're thinking of changing the interface a little bit uh, to make it not so hard. Maybe do we do something like binning. It's like saying, do you see more than 10 objects? Do you see 20? Or uh, can you make just the average wind direction across that screen that you see? Maybe something like that. Okay, okay. Um, because uh, we realize we, want, we don't want to wait so long for the results. We want to get it faster and we see that we can do interesting things with planet for terrains the terrains that gives us results quite faster than planet 4 itself 
Okay. So you, you keep talking about this data pipeline. This is what you do after you get the uh, volunteer data, right? Mm-hmm. And and to me, it sounds like I, I, I've seen some of your diagrams. It sounds like it's a pretty complicated uh, process of, of processing all this data so you can actually get something that's human readable, right? Could you maybe talk about that? So first thing is that you know, each database, and uh, especially under high load of the th- thousands of people that were interested during the um, BBC TV show when it was published. I uh, forgot now. Something with stars was the name. The, the public stars program. Yeah. Uh, where Brian Brian Cox was uh, also there. Yeah, yeah anyhow, I'm not sure. Yeah, so it, it was, uh, there was a high strains on the database and uh, there are some faulty entries there. So, um, but yeah, every, every big database has some issues somewhere technical. So there, there's a cleanup phase involved with that and then there's a maybe normalization of angles yeah for example we have this funny thing that the graphical tool uh, on the web browser was not really done for science so uh, it actually can distinguish if somebody draws a blotch from lower left to upper right or from upper right to lower left even so it doesn't have any discernible direction I had different angles like that mm, Okay. so I had to normalize the angles just by shifting them all by 180 degrees so that I only have one answer because I only need one answer for it right right for a blotch that doesn't have a direction. For fans, of course, it's different. So these kind of things, normalizations, but then the important stuff starts. Um, and this is this marvelous effect of the wisdom of the crowd. Um, BBC did a few years ago a very beautiful project, TV project about mar- uh, math, mathematics and its effect in everyday life. And there's an a effect that is called a wisdom of the crowd effect where you could run around with a glass of peas which is uncountable on first glance. You just see the glass of peas and you run around and ask people how many peas are in there. And amazingly, after you ask several hundred people, the average value is correct. Wow. This is really, this is mind-blowing math effect for me, the Gaussian mathematics, uh, how it works with the, that the average statement at the end actually gets to the true result. And this effect is what we're exploiting with this universe in general. We have many people looking at the same thing. They each have their imprecision. And by the way, uh, we four scientists, we also completely don't agree on how we mark things. <laughs> so we actually need the high statistics of numbers uh, uh, of many people doing the same thing. And then basically the average value of them is v- pretty darn correct. And I have shown this on the, on the recent posters that I uh, have put to conferences, DPS before and now Planet 4. Um, the PSC, I'm sorry, uh, that you start with a bunch of markings that are scattered all over the place a little bit from so many people having done it. And at the end, uh, well, in the middle, uh, I should mention, I do what's called clustering. And that's a machine learning technique that finds, depending on which parameter I, I use, X, Y coordinate of the central point, maybe I can also decide to do length or angle, uh, where I say, if it clusters around in that mathematical dimension, x, y coordinate, or angle, or length, if it clusters around a value, you can deviate that much, that's parameter one, uh, to be included into a cluster family. And I need minimum number of so-and-so many numbers, members of this cluster to survive you until the end, to, to have you survive until the end. That's parameter two. Minimum family numbers or cluster members and this distance up to where I allow you to become a member. So that sounds like you're, you're getting rid of outliers with that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Very nicely so. So there are some people who maybe got bored or, and they draw some shapes all over the place. And many people have thought this is never uh, possible to clean that up. But the modern data analysis tools, uh, especially for machine learning, they, they have been built for this. And they're mathematicians who are interested in these problems to do this correctly and they work amazingly well so I have very nicely cleanly identified what we call noise markings and they're just thrown away and I still have enough to survive uh, so that the mean values of it are, are really nicely lining out the initial shape that I wanted to know about on the ground so, so that's basically uh, the, the major part of this pipelines there is uh, one more detail that we were a bit surprised at the end, and that cr- created a lot of work uh, still ongoing with that, is that we interestingly have to scale for the sensitivity of the high-res imaging mode. 
uh, what this is, is that depending on the urgency or let's say scientific interest or expected light output and precision required, we can run the high-res uh, uh, high image camera in binning modes, where we to, maybe to save data rate, and that's always costly data rate we have to save. And if it's not required the, to have the highest resolution, we bin the data by factor two or by factor four even, which then would go in resolution from 25 to 50 centimeters or even to one meter. So now we have these data all mixed, and we realized that the highest resolution data Actually, people see many more details, many more small details. It's understandable because it's the highest resolution data. Unfortunately, when I try to make a timeline of all our analysis over the spring and summer time, and some of this data in the middle has highest resolution, people see so many more things that, the, that they peek out of the pipeline as if something extraordinarily happened there. <laughs> and, it, and it scared us for a moment saying, whoa, that's like weird, it's like... What, what happened there and uh, why, why is it so weird until I clicked and uh, I checked on the resolution binning of the high-res camera. And now we seem to understand that we have to treat this in a way we have to basically normalize the sensitivity of what people see. It's basically also a little bit of a psychology factor there because depending on if it's one pixel or two pixels, you might think one pixel is an image artifact or it's just some noise, right? If it starts to be two or three or four pixels, then people think that's something that I should mark because we don't give very strict instructions and in saying you only mark it if it's bigger than that. Yeah. We just say it's a black spot and we're interested in black spots. It's true. And then if it's highest resolution image, of course, everybody uh, that, that really uh, wants to help us, and that's most people, they mark all these little things. But if I, have com if I want to compare that with lower resolution data, it just doesn't scale. So it's still useful to have this high resolution data. But if I want to make a plot over time in comparing all the data we have, I have to unfortunately filter those out so that they become uh, useful uh, on the same sensitivity level as the higher binned data. So you mentioned you, you had a couple posters, uh, one at DPS last year and then... Uh um, this year at uh, the Lunar Planetary Science Conference, did you, um, you know, did you have some results to present? Is that are you are you at that stage yet? So it's the uh, we have this test results that we uh, basically scale against our success from manual manual work of uh, Gana Pochankina, uh, our my wife and colleague in in this process, and uh, basically she went manually through high res images and focused on some uh, on one special area only. Or maybe she she did too, uh, but but because it looked similar, she didn't go much further with it. I think, but one she did completely through over the time, looked at the certain area and looked how active it is, how, how how this activity in terms of how many spots I see, how does it change over time, and uh, that's our our measure, our scale. Uh, so that's a certain activity over the so-called L sub S value. L sub S means solar longitude. That is the position, basically the year value of Mars, right? That's the fractional part in terms of 360 degree uh, where we are in the year on Mars. And uh, southern spring starts at the value 90 L sub S, just by definition. And, um, and, when, and we have this uh, curve, uh, sorry, the southern spring starts in 180. I was confused for some reason. Uh, so around 180, uh, most of our plots start. Actually, a bit earlier. That was the initial science surprises that we uh, already knew before Planet 4 that the activity is surprisingly early. And uh, with very few lights, just scattering around, activity starts. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the, this curve is, is the scale of our success. And we have now been able to reproduce pretty much with, uh, with even a slightly nicer precision because we have more averages available uh, we can uh, recreate that curve of activity over spring and summer and uh, autumn so so that is our first scientific success that we can do that and uh, we put one or two of these examples in the first technical paper and uh, once the pipeline basically is solid we can just uh, we we will be very productive in just uh, basically making applying that pipeline to the other regions, and then um, and then throughout inter-regional comparisons, and uh, 
uh, interseasonal comparisons from one year to the next. Because uh, what we're interested in uh, is how stable is this activity and uh, how does it vary. And uh, yeah, so maybe we want to talk about why, why, what's the in, in uh, inferences we can actually do with this work. Yeah. So uh, there's two major things. Uh, first, this whole effect is a geomorphological agent happening right now, which is still kind of amazing because 20 years ago we thought Mars is just a dead planet, dead surface, nothing happens there. But every spring, uh, every local spring, it hap also happens in the north in a slightly different way because it happens there on Junes mostly. Uh, but that's a topic for a different day, maybe. Uh, every spring, we have the CO2 gas jets coming out, scratching stuff from the surface, putting it on the ice, uh, and then we believe in 1,000 to 10,000 years, uh, somewhere in between there, we, it creates these spiders, what we call, uh, formally speaking, we call them RNA forms uh, for being a geomorphological, geotopographical form that has similar shape as a spider. Um, but colloquially, we always call them spiders. Um, and so they're being created today. It's the geomorphological agent today and is as exciting as uh, the other researchers that have shown that dunes are actually moving today. Because for a long time, we thought that these dunes are cemented and that they're not moving. And now we have seen with high-rise, highest resolution that they're actually being transported now. So that's one thing. The other exciting and important thing is that Part of this uh, uh, material that comes out of the jet is very fine dust. It's so fine so that it will fly and, and, and or float sorry, uh, in the atmosphere and will act like a normal aerosol that we have on Earth and it will heat the atmosphere. Hmm. And, uh, and this heating agent is an important effect on understanding the so-called general circulation model. That's the general atmosphere, how it when. How does it move where, when, with what temperatures, and what winds are created? That's how we model the Martian atmosphere. And we believe that the amount of dust that is being transported there is actually gigantic and re reaches levels of, uh, not global, but let's say polar area-wide sandstorms. As much material, we believe, is being moved every year by the CO2 gas jets. Wow. So uh, the amount of aerosols being carried in the atmosphere has to be significant in terms of the warming effect. For, and so it should be taken into account in atmosphere simulations. Having worked with this sort of uh, citizen science, this volunteer science thing for a couple of years now, how do you find that to, you know, traditional methods, you know, maybe just using grad student power and, and just kind of going over everything by yourself? You know, how do you find the difference there? So it is, it is quite different. Uh, and... For a first thing, for me, actually, the mathematical methods I apply are completely different. Because when I do it myself, I'm basically uh, hands-on with, yeah, I have marked it, and so I take it as a truth value, and then I go directly to physics to, 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 to understand what does this now mean. With the Planet 4, uh, because we want to exploit this wisdom of the crowd effect to get pretty good values, but everywhere and to all times, which I alone could never do, I first have to go through all the mathematics and statistics that are required to reduce that data. And that's quite a different field. I mean, now I happen to be interested in machine learning anyhow. So for me, it was fine. But I think that this could be a hurdle for other scientists to approach this. Uh, so they should be warned that they have to learn a new field of science when they enter this. So um, the other thing that is new, of course, is the uh, kind of immense contact with volunteers and uh, I have to say I find it very satisfying because there are many people who are enthusiastic about it and they feel maybe sad that they never started a science career even so they could or they didn't have the opportunity and they or they had and they had to change career but they're missing it so we have a lot of people like this we have a very enthusiastic um, geologist who is uh, already uh, retired but he is helping so much in anal analyzing and helping interpreting us to see things. Because actually, I'm, as we, we've spoken before, I'm not an educated geologist. So actually, I need the help, the help of any geologist uh, the, uh, that I can get to, to help me interpret, interpret what I see. So this kind of interfacing with the public, I find it very cool because 
at the end of the day, we are being paid by the taxpayer. We are doing this for the common good. And it's only fair that we, somewhere we can, we integrate, we integrate the uh, public to, uh, to the highest degree possible. And uh, it is true that it creates more work, but the output of it is also, it's basically high investment, high output situation. Yeah. So, um, and, and I think uh, people just are having fun. I mean, we have some people who just browse the images of Mars. That's not very productive for me, and <laughs> it just happens. But, you know, people are enthusiastic about Mars. And uh, if we can share this, this super high-resolution data in this way, I think it, it, it has a lot of positive benefits for outreach and maybe also for the acceptance of all the work we do to, to explore the Mars, uh, Martian surface without actually being there. Yeah. Uh, well, you've basically just said uh, everything, everything after my own heart. As as you know, as someone who's involved with science communication, that's 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 what I love about this project. I think it's just so amazing that you can involve so many people with uh, you know little to no experience in anything like this uh, mm-hmm. to be involved in a real real science uh, endeavor. So that that's that's awesome. Thanks so much for that. So you know, before we go here, uh, do you want to maybe just talk a little bit about where where someone can go if they want to participate and uh, and how to find you on the internet? Yeah, so uh, I uh, I'm tweeting quite often, so you can find me there. Michael Aye, M I C H A E L A Y E. So that's my Twitter account. Uh, of course, if you would like to see what we're doing with Planet Four, that's planet4.org. Planet Four is one word. dot uh, org. Uh, there you can sign up, and we are also linking there. I forgot now the. Uh, the Earl of our daughter project, that's a bit longer, so it was not so nice to remember. But we have a link on Planet 4. If you're interested in a little bit uh, 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 different view, basically it's Planet 4, but zoomed out with CTX. You see more things. And uh, that's the project name, Planet 4 Terrains. And you can also help us out there. Perfect. Okay. Well, thanks so much for, for sharing your work with us. We, uh, you know, we really appreciate it here. And, thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, and good luck with, uh, with all, your, all your further data collection and, and hopefully your results after that. So. All right. Thank you very much. And that's all we have for today's episode. I'll have the links for the Zooniverse, Planet 4, and Planet 4 trains in the show notes of this episode, which you can read in full at our website, www.wemartians.com. You can also find a variety of blog entries and other Mars info there as well. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider adding a review and rating on iTunes or sharing it on social media. I'd love to meet some of your friends. And once again, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter at We underscore Martians and Instagram at We Martians for up-to-date news, photos and other information on all things Mars. Thanks so much for popping by to listen and be sure to join us next time on the We Martians podcast. Now I've got some fans and blotches to classify. <laughs>